Welcome, everybody. Let's talk real estate. Your weekly BS with Barry Saywitz about the current commercial real estate market here in Southern California. As we take a no BS look at both sides of the issues driving this market today to find the best solutions going forward. With our man right in the middle, Barry Saywitz. Hey, Barry. Hey, good morning, Paul, and good morning to all of our viewers and our listeners out there. Welcome back. If it's Tuesday, we're here talking real estate. I am Barry Saywitz, uh, president of the Saywitz Company and managing partner of Barry Saywitz Properties. And if it's one thing I've learned in my 30-plus years of doing this, it's to try and surround yourself with uh, good people that give you good advice uh, and good information so you can make sound business decisions. And we're here today. We're going to talk a little uh, real estate, a little law, a little politics. I'm excited about today's show. And I want to welcome our esteemed guest, Fred Whitaker, who is managing partner of uh, Cummins & White Law Firm here in Newport Beach and also dual title as chairman of the Republican Party of Orange County. So, Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you, Barry. I appreciate being on. Yeah, thanks for coming. So, uh, I want to dive into it. I got a million questions for you, and, and you wear two hats. But I want to start with your your longtime resident of Orange County uh, and, and longtime involved in business and law here, and you've seen a lot of changes over the years. I guess let's go back and rewind for a second. How did you get into the law side of things? And then I guess part two would be how did that foray into the political side? Well, I'd always had an interest in the law, even in high school and college. And then I ended up going to Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Uh, I interviewed with firms that had both L.A. and Orange County offices. Uh, My fiance, who's uh, my wife, uh, she was from Orange County and didn't want to live in Los Angeles. And so... Uh, In 1989, uh, as I was interviewing, Cummins & White uh, offered me a job as an associate. And uh, so I've been affiliated with the firm or one of our clients the entire time. Yeah, so that's a uh, long-standing relationship, if you will, with the firm. I also moved to Orange County in 1989. I started in real estate in October. I think the market crashed November 1st. So I caught it right at the at the right time. But from a lawyer's perspective, a lot going on at yes. the end of the 80s and into the 90s with a lot of development here in Orange County and really a lot of growth. Well, a lot of growth. And then the, the recession of 90s through 92 really ended up having a lot of workouts. And I actually developed some of my deal skills uh, doing workouts. Yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff going on with the bank at that mm-hmm. time. And uh, and then as we pulled out of that going into the late 80s and into the I'll call it the early 2000s with the dot-com stuff. Really a lot of businesses coming to Orange County. Orange County really finds itself in terms of a business hub as opposed to a stopping point uh, on the way to L.A., and uh, and you have a lot of companies that are actually headquartered here that uh, that are growing and hiring people and, and, and expanding. Then talk about how the market changes I guess, from the 2000s up to the recession. Talk about that period of time, because there's growth, and then all of a sudden it falls off a cliff. Yeah, so it's it's fascinating how the market always is changing around. So on the real estate side, I want to say in the early 2000s, most of my practice was working for new home builders. So we were out buying land, getting land entitled, and then flipping land sometimes to other merchant builders. And then all that came to a halt. And actually, that started coming to a halt in about 2007, right? Because the land acquisition side is on the leading edge. Well, as that happened, you know, you kind of have to look at your business as a lawyer, right? We're in business. Well, now that that home builder side is going away, where do we go? Well, you know what? Operating companies were still doing really well. 
And one of the things that I find fascinating about the atmosphere in Orange County is that there are long-held family businesses, and I worked for one for many years, uh, SC Fuels, owned by the Granke family, operating businesses that um, the owners not only make a profit in their business, they pour that profit back into the business, they buy the commercial real estate that their business operates in, they then take the ex- excess profits, and they often pour it into income-producing real estate here in Southern California and around the country. Yeah. They create generational wealth, really just with their, their bare hands. And um, it's an honor to be able to serve that clientele. We act as outside general counsel to privately held companies, the entrepreneurs who own them, and their families. And so, and that still happens today, right? I mean, uh, yep. I guess plug for Cummins and White, right? It's a full-service uh, law firm. Correct. We're a full civil service firm, full service civil firm. So, you know, everything I like to say from birth to death. So entity selection, formation, governance. Unlike a lot of mid-sized firms, we do finance opinions. Any business or real estate loan that's over $20 million today, the banks require a borrower's opinion of counsel. Many small firms won't do that because of the perceived risk. We do because we've actually been with that owner all the way through. We've been doing all the entity work. And so we're very confident in issuing the authority and forcibility opinions as they go and get their loans. And you guys do uh, certainly all aspects of real estate and litigation yes. as well. Exactly. We have full service litigation when our clients need to collect from a customer who hasn't paid them. When they somebody's stolen their trade secrets, uh, you, you name it, uh, we, we can take care of a dispute. Great. And, and then you are the managing partner overseeing yes. the operations of the firm. So in that role, I, I guess I'll fast forward a little bit. So we, we have the the economic run-up uh, prior to COVID, where mm-hmm. real estate values high, everything's perceivably going well, right? There, there's not much kinks in the armor, if you will. So we had a great much. run from yeah. you know, 2017 on. Right. Anybody who owned a home, their house was worth more. Anybody who invested in something, theoretically, it was worth more. Stock market up. All, all good stuff. And then, boom, COVID hits. So now you have clients calling, I'm guessing, in a bit of a panic, wondering what the heck they're going to do. And then you have your own firm that has to deal with the challenges of just running a firm in COVID. Yeah, 2020 was an interesting year, a very, very challenging year for my clients as well as our law firm. You know, transaction volume pretty much died immediately, yeah. went, went away. Most of the consultation that we were doing with our clients was how to furlough employees properly, how to lay off employees properly, and then how to deal with all the federal lending systems, whether it was the ITIL loans or the PPP loans, advising our clients how to go through that. You know, for the firm itself, we end up having to furlough nine people. So nine out of 40 full-time people, that's a lot. It's 25% of your And so not only did we have to do that, but then we had to deal with everybody having to work remotely. Right. And I'm a little bit old school. I like walking down to somebody's office and saying, hey, we need to change this priority and start working on this for this client as opposed to that for that client. And then when now your only communication is on a Zoom or a phone call or an email, and sometimes that reaction back and forth is delayed, it's not as accountable, it's not as dynamic. Um, And I just struggled with are we serving the client as well when we're working remotely? Yeah. So as soon as we could, unlike a lot of the major firms, we brought everybody back into the office. And some people weren't exactly happy with that. They got used to working from home. And then we did you know, lose a couple people to firms that would let them work from home 100%. But we have a crew now that is all in the office there to serve our clientele. 
and I, I think we perform better and work more collaborative collaboratively when we're in the office. Yeah, I agree 100%, and we had the same issues on our end. And you know, the good news is you don't have to put a suit on during COVID because when you're walking around, there's nobody there uh, if, you go, right. if you do go to the office. But at the same time, the deal flow, the synergies, the personal interaction, I hope more people take that into consideration, uh, which will help the real estate market and the office buildings and get them filled up. But Today, it sounds like, and what we're hearing, I'm curious your thoughts, what you're hearing from your clients, the people that are requiring their employees to come back, they're doing it. The people that are flexible with some in, some out, or part-time here, part-time there, they've already set that up. And then the people who either refuse to come to work, they're either going to a company that will allow them to do that, or they're not, right? Exactly, and we're seeing that across our clients as well as our competitors. And I think we have a little bit of an advantage, especially for the type of clientele that we serve, where it's still an owner-driven business, and the owner likes having their advisors in the office. They like being able to know they're gonna pick up the phone, get them immediately, and come see them uh, if they need to. You know, I thought that it was such an interesting thing. COVID was such an artificial shock to the system. Whereas, you know, in 2020, not only did my clients suffer, we were down over 20% year over year in gross revenue, but we were up 25% in gross revenue in 2021 from 2019. So we basically had a 45% swing in just two years. 2021 was an amazing year of M&A activity, and I think it was largely driven not only by low interest rates staying in place, but just built up demand. All the deals that didn't happen in 20, they finally they moved through to 21. And then 22 was a more normalized year. So let's fast forward to today, and we'll try and look ahead. What are you hearing and what are you seeing from the business clients that you do have in terms of their expectations for growth now that there's talk of recession, uh, whether you're acknowledge you're in it about to go in it got one foot in it you got stock market uh, struggles and then now you got much higher interest rates what are what are you advising your clients and then what are you hearing back from them well certainly what i'm seeing with my clients especially clients that have any exposure to manufacturing and they've been the ones suffering over the last two years with the supply chain issues with component parts coming largely from asia not only did they have a lot of excess freight costs, you know, the shipping containers were five times the normal cost, air freight on things that had to come in. Well, because of the supply chain delay, almost every client I have who's in some sort of manufacturing, uh, selling a widget of some sort, now has excess inventory because all that supply chain finally caught up. Excess inventory is cash sitting there that is not in your bank. Right. And so then, that ARAP spread has gotten larger, and now interest rates are higher. So the cost on your credit line, until you can get that inventory sold through the system, is higher. And so we're seeing really a pullback on my operating company clients in terms of, are they going to be in growth mode? Um, They're not necessarily looking at acquisitions this year, maybe not even next year, because they've got to get their operational costs under control to be able to then reposition to grow again. On the real estate side, we've seen, I think, just a a historic repositioning over time. You know, COVID really uh, severely damaged um, the office market. And I think you can see even in the traditional office area, like the airport area, where rents really are kind of very stagnant and there's a lot of vacancy. You can see some more, I wanna say, uh, trendy places like the Spectrum, where they seem to be recovering industrial is off the chart 
It, it doesn't matter that Amazon seems to be laying off people. That last mile industrial distribution center, it is a hot commodity. Yeah, and vacancy is super low. Right? Vacancy is so. super low. Um, and, you know, the other interesting thing is, you know, I think COVID put the nail in the coffin for retail at the street that didn't have a specialty reason to be there. Uh, and so, you know, what I'm seeing with my clients who've had, you know, historic thing was to buy a, a strip mall shopping center as part of your portfolio. Right. My clients have been trying to get out of those and roll into multifamily or industrial, especially in other parts of the country where you can make an arbitrage on the cap rate. Yeah, no question. And so then the issue is, you know, what do you do going forward? Do you continue to invest in Southern California where the returns are not so great, where it is a challenge to do business for many reasons and to own real estate and risk? At the same time, if I go someplace else, I get better cash on cash, but maybe that asset doesn't appreciate the the same degree that it necessarily would here. And that's a a balancing act of business plan. Absolutely. If you're looking to be a coupon clipper, you're going other places. And if you're if you're looking for appreciation because there's still 40 million people in California and this is, uh, you know, a tech hub, then you're you're still going to find the right type of asset class to be in in California. Yeah. So I want to shift gears because I know we're going quick and we're going to run out of time and I got a bunch of stuff I want to go over with you. I want to shift gears to the political side of things. So you're doing the lawyer thing. You're at what point do you decide, hey, I'm interested in politics, I want to get involved, involved in politics? You've been involved with the Republican Party for a long time, um, but what made you get in in the first place? Well, I got into politics when I was a kid with my parents. My parents were big Goldwater and Reagan people. I walked precincts with my dad when I was only seven years old. My parents were very active, and uh, my mom then got elected to the school board in Glendale, California, and that kind of inspired me. And so when I went to college at uh, Cal, the University of California at Berkeley, which is not a conservative place, no, not by any um, I became president of the College Republicans because I wanted to be part of the counterculture. Was that a smaller group of people than the uh, the opposite side? I uh, in one way, yes. In one way, no. We, we had 220 paid members. So yes, compared to the overall left, we were small. But because the left split themselves up so many ways, we were actually the largest club on campus with paid membership. Interesting. Yeah. And that dynamic, I, I assume in concept at least, not that Berkeley is a representative example of the state or the world, but a, a lot of that holds true today if you compare Orange County against the entire state of California, right? Yeah, absolutely. Orange County is the counterculture. Um, we still have a good business climate here. Um, and you know, despite some of the, the purple races that we have, you know, some where we lost a bunch in 18, but got, got some back in 2020, we still have um, the most intense Republican electorate um, in an urban area in the country. We control over 66% of all elected offices in Orange County, down to water boards and sanitation boards, and all the way up to congressional offices. And so the the recent press that you would have over the last couple of election cycles where uh, it, be, it the, the premise is, hey, uh, Orange County's really losing its Republican foothold and uh, their seat's going to the Democrats, Re- really not the case, but r- really just the message that gets sent out by the other side, I assume. Well, certainly they get to capitalize on having some wins in 2018. And I like to say that was the green wave rather than blue wave. Um, they spent $100 million over four seats, where we only spent about $28 million. And if you're outspent four times to one, I mean, you know, in marketing, 27 impressions gets you a buying decision. Right. When you're outspent that much, sometimes you get the buying decision, especially with an uninformed voter. One of the things that we found out of 2018 when we did after action polling was that our voters, just on narrow losses, 
went with a different candidate in uh, the congressional races. Still stuck with us on the gubernatorial race. John Cox, who didn't even get 40% statewide, won all four of those congressional seats we lost. Prop 6 to repeal the gas tax, which only got 40% statewide, won all four of those congressional seats we lost. So we knew that we had a message to those voters who split ticket. And in 2020, we were able to bring them back. And we got two seats back with Michelle Steele and Young Kim, held a bunch of other legislative seats, continued to win city council seats. And then as we built on that for 2022, uh, we almost took out Katie Porter. Our margins for Michelle Steele and for Young Kim were better. And even though Democrats outnumber Republicans by registration, in 2022, we turned out 30,000 more Republicans than Democrats in the overall election. In, in the election. I mean, it seems to me like the Republicans are better at actually turning out the vote than the Democrats. And even though there's there's a bunch of people out there, they... Well, when when, when the Democrats are, are doing illegal ballot harvesting, they're better, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole nother show, right? And so in, in terms of the, the wave over the past few years, what is the strategy of the Republican Party in general as far as maintaining and continuing to gain ground here and then also parlay that into you know what happens in sacramento or or in washington well we first start on the ground here right we have to be connected with our voters and connected with those people who are center right but still in the middle we have often found that our best success is when we're focusing on the local issues that matter to people not so much what's going on in washington because when we're focused on the issues like crime homelessness education we win going away Sometimes when you get into some of the battles that are in Washington, and they're very important, and they're important to a good swath of our voters and voters nationwide, people here can feel disconnected because California is so blue overall, they don't feel like we have a big influence on that. So if we just focus on our local issues and win the races, guess what? When you take two congressional seats, and then you know they picked up the Duarte in California, we picked up the Duarte seat, um, we have the Mike Garcia seat, All that actually then helps the national, right? Because the road to the majority came through seats in blue California that were picked up. And the way that we picked up those seats is we focused, whether it was here in Orange County or up in the Central Valley, we focused on local issues for people. Yeah, and it seems like you just, if you build and you take one step at a time, as opposed to trying to solve everything in one shot. Over 25 years ago, we had a governor, we had constitutional officers, and we had a majority in the state assembly. 1996. We had all of those things. It took you 25 years to kind of get to this point. It's going to take you a long period of time incrementally to get back to where we're having, you know, governors like Reagan, Duke, Mason, and Wilson. Yeah. And, and so as we sit today, you, how does it go in Sacramento with trying to get the voice out and trying to get things accomplished for the folks on the, the Republican side of the aisle? It seems like it's a, it's a challenge. Oh, it's a big challenge because we're in the super minority. You know, and, and once we can break that super minority position, then we can have an influence and stop taxes. So in 2014, where we were able to break the super minority, we had two full years where no taxes got passed by the legislature. And so that's a critical message to send out to voters. The state party, the state legislative caucuses, and our county parties all have a coordinated plan to take back eight seats in the Assembly, and I think it's four seats in the Senate, to make sure we can break that supermajority in two terms. And when we do that, then we can have real influence. The other thing that all of our legislators have the power to do 
is they have the unilateral right as a member of the legislature to go to the legislative analyst office, the LAO, and ask them to audit a particular program. And all of them are going to start doing this where they're going to then go have press conferences when these audits come back. Because as you know, when we have a billion dollars in EDD fraud, when we have a train to nowhere, go on and on and on. How about all the billions of dollars of bond for water uh, systems and reservoirs that have never been built? Once we get that message out to voters, then you're still going to see a seat change. And so let's look ahead then, because people are already talking about 2024 and what's going to happen. And, and there are important seats in the state of California and Orange County, and uh, in addition to the country, obviously, with the presidential election. What strategies does the Republican Party here have going forward? And, and maybe who are some of the races or the people to watch? Well, I think, you know, the, the big race to watch here in Orange County is Congressional 47. So Katie Porter spent $28 million to barely retain her seat. She didn't win it, and less than a month later, she announced she was running for the U.S. Senate. Yeah. That leaves that seat as an open seat. And I, I understand why Katie Porter did that. She'd have to raise $28 million every time to try and keep the seat. $28 million, she can win a, ghost, uh, a six, six-year seat in the, in the U.S. Senate. Scott Baugh uh, had you know, not only good grassroots, but great fundraising ability. He has already gotten our endorsement from the party to do it again. You're not seeing any other Republican challengers. The Democrats are having fratricide right now. They've got David Min. They've got Cotty Petri Norris making calls. They've got an environmental activist for Laguna Beach who's in the race. Right. you got Harley Ruda, who always resented that his seat was taken away from him. So we're going to be focused on one candidate in a district that's dead even between Republicans and Democrats who's got good fundraising ability, good grassroots ability, and they're going to have a split ticket. So for us in Orange County, that's the that's seat. That's the key one. That's right. the seat to and watch. And Scott was so close this last time. Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, hopefully he gets over the edge this next time and, and success. Right? I really believe he will. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, and so, uh, and then you talk about the Feinstein uh, seat, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, obviously that's a law. A seat. I mean, she's been there for a guy. Yeah, since 92. Right? 1992. So, yeah. And so there'll be, I guess, change there, but in a, in a most Democratic state, you would think that the edge would go to a Democrat for that seat. I think on the statewide, the, the edge is to the Democrats, unless we have a, a celebrity candidate who decides to get in and people are, um, you know, put out enough with uh, what the Biden administration's doing. So, I, you know, my focus is really going to be what's on going on in Orange County. And, you know, one of the great things about being in Orange County, because we are so critical to the fundraising ability of any candidate. And we are something that uh, you might find interesting, or the listeners might find interesting, is that the Republican and the Democrat presidential primary have been pulled forward for 2024 to March instead of June, so that it's on Super Tuesday. People may not think California is a Republican state, but we're the largest state in the nation. We have more Republicans than any other state in the nation. We have more delegates to the Republican National Convention than any state in the nation. So you're going to see everybody who wants the Republican nomination and everybody who wants to see the Democrat nomination coming into California. But more importantly, on my side of the aisle, you're going to see every one of them coming into Orange County. And and early, right? And because, early, right. And so speaking of that, I mean, you have um, uh, functions, events, uh, fundraising, uh, awareness, all kinds of things that the Republican Party puts on. I guess I have two questions for you. The first is, for someone who wants to get involved with the party, uh, how can they, without writing a big check, if they want to help, if they want to get involved? Yeah, first thing is just go on your internet, www.ocgop.org, and our calendar of events is right there. 
And, you know, we have a monthly central committee meeting that is free and open to guests. In March, we have former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson at that central committee meeting. In April, we have Steve Hilton from Fox News at that central committee meeting. We have lots of other events, trainings, things that you can do to even get involved in just contacting voters in your neighborhood. Uh, We have a very easy-to-use app. It's not like walking precincts in the old days where you had pieces of paper and you had to make marks on on the paper and everything. It's just pushing button on an app and you go, oh, I'm supposed to go to this house and talk to this person. It makes it very, very easy to be involved. Um, And then, you know, we we have, uh, and I'm very pleased to say that on Sunday night, March 5th, it is sold out. We have Governor Ron DeSantis here in Orange County raising money for the Republican Party of Orange County our largest attendance and our largest fundraising event ever. Yeah, and and it's exciting because he's at the forefront of the uh, presidential campaign, I guess, hasn't fully announced, but uh, we'll see how it goes here in the next couple of months. But uh, with uh, President Trump coming when when he was in office and now with Governor DeSantis, you really got uh, high profile, really. Orange County is a a place that I think Republican candidates nationwide want to come to. Yeah, we're, we're expecting to see everybody come through Orange County over the next five to six months. You know, with the primary being in March, filing for that primary closes the first week of December. It opens in November, right before Thanksgiving. So I don't care whether it's a a candidate for Orange County supervisor. Um, I don't care whether it's president of the United States. They have to get all of their paperwork in and get on the ballot in the November to first week of December timeframe of this year. And you'll blink and you'll be there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's coming up. And so I think also as time goes on, you'll start to see uh, just the average person in the news. People already talk about it, but uh, it, it'll it'll raise uh, the bar in terms of taking over what's going on. I, I want to ask you real quick, we only have a few minutes left, in terms of the economy as a whole, which obviously impacts the political side of things and certainly just impacts the average person on a daily basis. Where do you see the economy going and what are the challenges that we have for at least the remainder of the year? I mean, is it interest rates? Is it inflation? Is it recession? It's all three. I mean, interest rates are hitting consumers who unfortunately are back to borrowing at uh, high rates. Interest rates are hitting businesses on that ARPAP spread that we talked about earlier. Inflation, the interest rates are up because there is real inflation. The excess amount of money that went into the system in COVID, then you add in the supply chain inflation, I'm not sure the government has all the right tools to be able to control it, but they're using the one tool they have. The only tool they really have are interest rates. And so both inflation and interest rates are significant problems. You know, I don't know about your business, but in our business, it's been much more expensive to hire good people and to get them to come into the office. And then, you know, certainly because of that, people are starting to slow down their investment in things. They're slowing down their uh, spending on things. And so then that you know, makes you think, all right, our end of third quarter, fourth quarter, are we going to be in a recession if we're not already partially there? And then sometimes it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. People anticipate it, they hunker back. And so I think all three of those things are going to play a big, big role, not only in business, but in politics for 2024, because um, people don't like having inflation, recession, and high interest rates. They're going to want to change. Yeah, no, there's no question, and and it it oh, we already see it uh, in our own tenants and our own clients that we have impacting 
how they're reacting on a daily basis. You have less transaction volume in the real estate market because of the run up in the interest rates. And at the end of the day, that has to trickle down to what's going on with the rest of things. I think it's it's been slow to have the impact that it needs, but between now and the end of the year, when the political side will start to heat up even more, I think you're gonna see some more changes in the economy and, and it's gonna impact what, what people are doing and saying about their own campaigns. Well, it's interesting, in the last campaign, inflation started off like at the number five issue where crime and homelessness were number one and number two. Inflation moved up to the number three issue by the time November hit. I think by the time we have 2024, inflation will be number one and crime and homelessness will be number two. And and crime and homelessness haven't really been solved uh, dramatically either while there's been steps taken. Right. There's still real issues and still have to get addressed. Absolutely. Which is probably a whole nother show. But uh, we are uh, out of time. Uh, I I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts, both on the business side and on the political side. How can people reach you at Cummins and White uh, in terms of the website that you have there? Yeah, so it's www.cumminsandwhite, all spelled out, no ampersand, www.cumminsandwhite.com. And I'm F. Whitaker at CWLawyers.com. Uh, on the political side, it's www.ocgop.org, and you'll absolutely see every event and uh, program we have to offer there. That's great. And so I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on both sides of the equation and much continued success to you, to your firm, to your family, to the Republican uh, cause and, and to the events that you have coming up. And I uh, appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for having me, Barry. I enjoyed it. So I'm Barry Saywitz, president of the Saywitz Company, and uh, we appreciate all of our viewers and listeners uh, tuning in and listening in. And uh, I want to thank all the folks here at OC Talk Radio for helping us put the show on every week. Uh, If it's Tuesday, we're talking real estate. We'll see you back here again next week, and thanks for tuning in. have it you've been listening to let's talk real estate your weekly bs with barry saywitz about the current state of the real commercial real estate market right here in southern california on orange county's only community radio station oc talk radio streaming live from our studio here at the university of california irvine's beal applied innovation center